All right. Again, good morning. We, we find ourselves this morning back in the Gospel of Mark. And it's here that we come upon a new event, but also we come upon a common response, which then is followed by a new warning. The new event is a second, indeed a second miraculous feeding of a large crowd. The common response was both from the Pharisees and from the disciples. The Pharisees continued to despise Jesus. They continued to display, they were uh, uh, hating him, if you will, for displaying his divinity and for correcting their teaching. And the disciples, they, of course, continued in their thick-headedness. They still didn't get it. Neither of them, the Pharisees or the disciples, neither of them understood who it was before them. Our passage this morning, it also presents a new and quite stern warning. We're going to focus on that later from Jesus, which is to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. All right, so that's your 30,000-foot overview of this morning's sermon. We're about to read the text that we picked. Uh, we're going to pick that up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Sundays ago. It's the Word of God, Mark 8. It's up on the screens. It's also, of course, in your pew Bibles. I do encourage you to bring your own Bible. You can find it fast. It's in your own version that you're used to. And let's now pay attention to the Word of God. Again, Mark 8, beginning at verse 1. In those days... When again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've, they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them will have come from far away. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. After having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Amen. If we, if we were studying the gospel of Mark for the first time, after reading the passage, we might be tempted to ask, what's going on here? What's happening? Did a, a scribe, perhaps in the early centuries, did he mix up his manuscript and repeat the same narrative that we had found some weeks ago in Mark 6, specifically verses 30 through 44? After all, if you're familiar with that event, there are so many similarities between that one, that narrative earlier in Mark 6, the account where Jesus fed the 5,000 men. On both occasions, of course, a vast multitude gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus somewhere out in the wilderness where there were no fast food places to drive through. This was out in the wilderness. And in both narratives, Jesus was moved by compassion for the needs of these people. And in both stories, the disciples, they they expressed doubts. Kind of hard to imagine they did it a second time, but in both instances, they expressed doubts that such a large group could be fed in the middle of nowhere. Jesus also inquires in both accounts as to what provisions were on hand. Right? He sent the disciples to figure this out, which led them to finding only a few loaves and a few fish. In both narratives, of course, Jesus multiplies those, the loaves and the fishes, to such a degree that all of the people were fed. They were all satisfied to the point that there were even leftovers that were collected. And in both accounts, Jesus leaves by boat. He departs them and he goes to another part of the Sea of Galilee. And then finally, another similarity in both narratives the event is followed by an interrogation, really a confrontation with the Pharisees. These are a lot of similarities. So on the surface, a cursory hearing of these might just lead you to believe, to conclude that it's the same miracle, somehow recorded twice. But it's not. And we know that it's not because on the other side of that coin, these are differences between the two, between the two miraculous feedings in Mark 6 and in Mark 8. Some of the more obvious ones are that in Mark 8, the people were with Jesus for three days. Not just one, but three. Another difference is that there were discovered seven loaves, not five. The amount of leftovers also differed, there being fewer baskets in Mark 8. And finally, the numbers of those who ate were significantly different. In Mark 6, you'll remember that the crowd's number was 5,000 men. And the original language is specific about that. It's men. It infers or implies that there were additional women and children, which put the number greater than 5,000. But in Mark 8, the figure is strictly 4,000 people, which is inclusive of men, women, and children. Of course, the most compelling evidence is from the Lord himself himself. 
We don't discount the prior, but this is, in fact, said by Jesus. It silences all the theories of contextual errors that Jesus later mentions both feedings in a single discussion with the disciples, and that's in your verses 17 through 21 of our text this morning. So on those points, but especially the last one, we can be confident that this Mark 8 account does not indicate a copyist's a copyist's error. Rather, the Word of God accurately tells of two separate and equally miraculous acts of Christ multiplying loaves and fishes to feed vast multitudes. This morning's verses 8 through 10. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. We don't know where that is. All right. The location of Dalmanutha is not known, but it seems, and I'll explain why, it seems likely that it was somewhere on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Mediterranean seaside, because that's where the Jewish areas were. And I make this presumption. It's bolstered by the fact that just as they did after feeding the 5,000, the Pharisees, right, those are the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees approached Jesus after he had fed the 4,000. And the Pharisees are not likely to be where the Jews are not. Verses 11 through 13, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again, and went to the other side. All right? This is not a Greek lesson, but I guess it is a small sort of Greek lesson. The English word there, uh, test, the English word for test, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. That word test is weaker in English than it is in the original Greek, which actually indicates that the Pharisees were out to pester Jesus. Okay, they were out to harass him. They weren't there to merely have a polite discussion or a debate. They were deeply hostile towards the Lord. This hostility it manifested itself in their demand for him to do more. They wanted to see a sign that convinced them that somehow proved his identity. How many did they need? You would think by now... I don't know, 30 that's recorded so far for us and and just this little gospel of Mark, thereabouts, multitudes, many people. How many signs did they need? He had been going through, Jesus had been going through the region of Galilee with a blaze of miracles. Everywhere he went and he was healing the sick. He was healing those with various maladies and disabilities. Pharisees, however, They were convinced that Jesus was doing this not by his divine power through God and being God, but uh, they were ascribing to him by the works of Satan. You can refresh yourself on that in chapter 3, verse 22, if you'd like. These Pharisees, they did not see Jesus as 
his works, his miracles as divine authentications, proving that he was not only a trustworthy prophet, let alone God in the flesh. They wanted what they could judge to be a conclusive sign that would settle the matter once and for all. And in basic terms, their challenge was this. They were saying, Jesus, prove to us that you're really God. Prove it. But they were never satisfied. They would never be satisfied. Right? Remember, Jesus said, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe me. You had the word of God. They were demanding, they were demanding a miracle, this very proof, if you will, all the way up until Jesus' end, his last breaths, breaths. He was dying on the cross. You know, they were mocking him and telling him, you know, if you're really God, do these things. Prove to us. In response to all this, Jesus, he sighs deeply in his spirit, we're told, and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. That's verse 12. Again, we have English. Our English language fails to provide really a full, a full comprehension or understanding of what's going on here of how Jesus reacted. The Greek indicates he did more than just sigh. Actually, more than just a heavy sigh. It, it demonstrates that he was actually exasperated. He was sick and tired of this kind of response to his works of mercy and to his teaching. Now, we might be tempted to think that because Jesus was sinless, that somehow he should have been more patient on this point. Now, to be clear, he could have been more patient, more long-suffering, despite already having been exceedingly so, really, really patient with these obstinate and contrarian religious leaders. But while the Bible often talks about God's patience, right, his forbearance, his long-suffering, nowhere does it ever say that God's patience is infinite. Given the immense power of God and his character, I surmise that it could be infinite. But God sometimes, through his own will, his own wisdom, he chooses to limit his benefits In Genesis 6-3, in the days before the flood, when the wickedness of men was growing exponentially, God said, my spirit shall not, with, shall not strive with man forever. I'm not going to put up with this any longer. Scripture plainly teaches us, teaches us that there are limits to God's application of his patience. He may forbear with us week after week, month after month, year after year, decades after decades, and we probably will get comfortable with that. We'll think that he'll always put up with us. But there have been times in redemptive history where God says enough is enough. And he simply gave people over to their sin. That's a scary thought. But something like that has happened here. Jesus said that for faithlessly asking for yet another sign, the the Pharisees would be given no sign at all. Then he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. That's verse uh, verse 13. Now, by the way, there's a difference here in this phrase, he left them. 
It's not like he just departed the scene. It's more like the Lord shook the dust off of his sandals and he left them in their sin as apostate. Right? That's the, that's the word meaning an unrepentant person who has given up their religion. He shows no real concern for it. Jesus left them. It's another scary thought. And then we get to a major point. It's a major point in the text. It's a warning from God himself. It's not just a, by the way, heads up to the disciples, but it's a major, major caution for us today. And here's the narrative leading up to that. In verse 14, Mark tells us, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now for whatever reason, the disciples, they didn't discover this until they were well on their way on the water, out on the lake, and apparently... They became concerned and discussed the problem. And when they did, Jesus, he seized on this opportunity to give them a charge. Surely, of course, he was still thinking about the clash with the Pharisees back in Dalmanutha. He said to them, and and here's the warning, verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven, of course, it refers to yeast that's added to bread, right? To bread dough to make it rise. We, we all know that. It's a metaphor here, however, that suggests that a small amount of something, if it's, if it's applied into something else, that small amount can alterly, uh, uh, radically alter whatever it's put into. When it gets mixed in, the New Testament almost always declares that this leaven is negative in its context. It's, it's seen as an influence that corrupts and that it destroys. Leaven is associated with pride in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, and with malice and wickedness in 1 Corinthians 5, 8. And it's associated with false teaching, especially on, the circum- on circumcision in Galatians 5, 9. And so what Jesus is saying here to the disciples, he's saying, watch out for false doctrine. Watch out for hypocrisy. Watch out for unbelief. This stuff comes really subtly. You've got to pay attention. You've got to know your Bible. This caution doesn't mean that we ought to be afraid of, of false doctrine. But we, shouldn't shun, uh, but we should shun it like the devil himself, because that's where it comes from. False doctrine comes from the devil himself. We ought not entertain it, certainly not from the pulpit, but also not from the Sunday school classroom or in the office or even amongst friends over a meal. False doctrine was punishable, you know this, by death in the Old Testament. If a prophet was deemed or proven to be false, if his prophecies didn't come true, he was executed. It's insidious seed. It grows to kill the spiritual life of the believer. And so that's my primary charge, by the way. As long as I'm your pastor, the most important thing I can do is to protect this pulpit. As far as I'm able, I'll protect your ears from false teaching, right, from false doctrine. It poisons the soul. 
And at the risk of unpopularity, I'll battle to make sure that the living truth of God is not perverted or not misproclaimed. I'll challenge that. Now, here's but one recent example. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking. I was speaking with a woman who attended our VBS adult Bible study series here in this sanctuary. As a matter of sharing her spiritual journey with me, she proudly announced that she faithfully listened to a particular preacher on television. Okay? It was obvious that she, as she was describing this to me, that there was sort of a sense of pride about it. She was really excited about sharing this with me, that I would approve of her diligence and her solid source of Bible education. But the man that she named was, is, in fact, a heretic doesn't teach Orthodox Christianity. He was, and he still is, a profound false teacher, so much that has ever sullied our airwaves. And I thought about actually naming him from the pulpit this morning, but I'm not going to. I I don't want you to fixate on this guy for a moment. But if you really care who this man is, feel free to call me or come to my office. I'll not only tell you his name, but I'll tell you why the preaching or the teaching is heretical how it leads one straight to hell. Anyway, I informed her that her fond preacher was, and this is a direct quote from me, he's a kook. And then I explained why, biblically speaking, that he was a kook. Her her jaw dropped open. Could you not? Open. Literally, her mouth was stuck open in a sort of a type of shock, dismay. She was astounded to learn that she had been misled For decades, she actually teared up. She had not only wasted innumerable hours listening to this false teacher, but his guidance had stolen her understanding of the gospel, the grace of God. And it ruined her right understanding of who God is. This man had misled her down a path of empty emotionalism was not the life-changing word of God, but a mix of confusing rhetoric that sounded good, sounded smart, was appealing, it was tasty, made her feel good. It was a deadly waste. So I want to remind you of Jesus' warning that you must avoid false teaching. Don't dabble in it, lest we become like those whom Paul, the apostle Paul, the great Paul, who had led to conversion, those whom he had led, they became swayed by the persuasive words of a false teacher. These are people under Paul. Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you, should o- that you should not obey the truth? They were swayed by somebody's persuasive speech. And so we, we're not above that. Let's not deceive ourselves. Let's not think more of ourselves or our capabilities. If the Galatians, who were under the tutelage of Paul, right, the great apostle, if they can be misled, then so can we. So I have a rule of thumb that I advise you to embrace. When I was a pilot in the Air Force, I went through what they call escape and evasion training. Essentially, how to not get captured after an ejection or a crash landing. Into, ten, excuse me, into enemy territory. 
But if you are, then they try to teach you how to deal with captivity, deprivations, and torture, and how to effect an escape so that you can return home with honor. That's important, not just to leave, not just to get out, but to have gone through the ordeal with honor. As a phase of that training, one of the the things that we were taught was wilderness survival, how to live off the land, which included how to eat certain things and what to avoid. That's important. I'll always remember this sergeant. He was the survival instructor. He taught us on the mushroom. I'll never forget that. We were warned not to eat them, regardless of how hungry we might get. And the reasoning was that while many mushrooms are edible, their nutritional value is really minimal. It's not worth the risk of the far greater types of the poisonous mushrooms that are around. Their varieties, the mushroom varieties we learned, often looked alike, sometimes exactly alike making them extremely difficult to discern the good from the bad, the poisonous mushroom from the okay ones. And so we were taught to simply avoid them. Don't do it. And that's what I want you to do. Just avoid the television preacher. You may miss a helpful sermon or two. You may miss a good point or two. But the risk of getting a diet of false teaching is far... Well, it's great. And it far outweighs the little bit of good that you might encounter. And that little bit of leaven is dangerous. And that's, that's what Jesus says. It's dangerous. So remember the mushroom. Okay. At the risk of running a bit long, just a little long, I think it's important to drive this point home, not based on my Air Force story, but based on Scripture. After all, the Bible is the only thing that should bind your conscience on spiritual matters. And so I want to point out some of the more weight for this from Scripture. In Romans 16, Paul, he's just finished, Paul, his extensive greetings to the Christians in Rome. And he then begins a warning about false teachers. He, he warns that, excuse me, the warning lasts for several verses in chapter 16. And it seems to kind of come out from almost nowhere as he explains that the true gospel is the only defense against error. Right against heresy, against biblical error. And Paul's apparent sudden turn to the matter of false teachers, it's actually not sudden at all. He's addressed this many other times. We know from his other letters, such as Galatians, which I've already referenced, that Paul frequently had to combat preachers of error that had infiltrated the churches in the region. The apostle's admonition is the same one that he gave to the Ephesian elders, Namely, to be on their guard against the false teachers who might infiltrate the flock. If you want to write down a couple of verses, Romans 16, 17 would be a good start. And then Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. Paul warns that these false teachers will attempt to divide the church. And they'll introduce obstacles that are contrary to true doctrine. And he has some serious errors in mind here. The the word obstacle is not an inconvenient hurdle. Here it connotes a spiritual problem that will result in damnation. It takes root in a person's life. If it does that, it's going to lead that person to hell. It's more like a cancer cell. And the apostle wants his audience to be very careful 
about those who would divide professing Christians and who affirm true apostolic faith and to look out for those who teach soul-damning doctrine. As we look around our congregation, we have a diverse denominational background here. As well as we look around our Covington community and other congregations and denominations, we're right, we are right not to ostracize ourselves from friendships. We're right to take care not to divide over non-essential matters. We don't do that. We embrace, we love. But we can have spiritual unity with other professing believers only insofar, spiritual unity, only insofar as they stand for the pure gospel. And that's taught directly and plainly to us in the scriptures. Some examples, again, are Romans 14, 1. Actually, through 15, 7, whole chapter. And Galatians 1, verses 8 through 9. So again, per Jesus, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We must never divide with those who agree in the truth of Christ. We're not going to do that. But it's shameful. It's a shameful defense to teach or to put up with false doctrine under the pretext of peace and unity. That's wrong, too. Friendship with the world at the expense of truth is a path to hell, and it does no one any good. In fact, it does harm. Now, verse 16. The disciples were taken aback by this strange warning about yeast or leaven. They they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have no bread. Where's our Kaiser roll and our pumpernickel? Where is this? The Lord's unhappy with us. What's going on? Somehow they failed to connect Jesus' mention of the Pharisees with that recent unpleasant incident. And so, perceiving their confusion and lack of understanding, Jesus then says in verse 17, Why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? These are rhetorical questions, right? They, they, don't, they don't beg an- responses. We know what the responses are going to be. They're clearly meant to be answered in the negative, but they constitute a strong reproach of the disciples. Jesus had been saying to those in his hearing, right, in his teaching, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples had heard the Lord's teachings with their ears, but yet they had not understood with their hearts. They didn't know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, yet. Basically, their view of Jesus was still as faulty as that of the Pharisees. Now, they didn't respond the way the Pharisees did, but they were still blinded. But then Jesus got even more pointed with them. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? They had seen mighty miracles. They had seen Jesus feed thousands upon thousands of people on two occasions. And yet they were concerned because they had forgotten bread. How could they not know? 
They'd seen Jesus, their, their master. They'd seen that he was fully capable of supplying their need. This is a humbling rebuke, not from me to you, from Jesus to the disciples, but we can learn from it. Yet, it's not without hope. I want you to notice one tiny word in verse 17. Yet. Y-E-T, yet. Jesus had not given up hope on them. He expected that in time, by the grace of God, that they would perceive and that their hearts would become soft. And by now, by now you know, I've said this before, you're smart people, you get this, you you know that at birth we're deaf and we're blind to the things of God, right? We're born in sin. That's that doctrine of original sin. Our hearts are hard. They have no pulse for God whatsoever. And so as we grow up, the word of God, it bounces off of us. Just like our hearts are made of stone, it doesn't sink in. Until the Holy Spirit, until he opens our eyes and our ears, we're impervious to the truth of God. We don't get it. We can't get it. We don't absorb it. The disciples, they were in this state. They were fallen creatures, just like you and me. But Jesus, thank God, literally Jesus, he saw the possibility of a change of heart for them. Sometimes this takes time. Not everyone's conversion experience is similar. And we ought not peanut butter spread our experience onto them. God works differently with individuals. So we must continually ask ourselves, regularly ask yourselves, how's my hearing How are my eyes? How's my vision? What's my perception of God? How's my heart? Is his word bouncing off me? Do I take away that application of remembering the mushroom? Or am I just going to forget about it? It means nothing. You need to ask yourself if if God's truth penetrates and sinks in. So examine yourselves in light of God's word. That's the the litmus test, not in light of me or someone else's spiritual condition or even your wife. In light of God's word, be sure, be sure that the leaven of the Pharisees is not creeping in. It's everywhere, and it wants to creep in. It has an active master that's trying to sow it into us. But don't dabble in false teaching. It will blind us, and it will make us deaf to the life-giving word. Let's pray. Gracious God, by your Holy Spirit, we pray for your continued protection, enlightenment, and power to live as you would want, to live in your truth and light. In Jesus' name, amen.